0: Alright, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. We're in a series on Ephesians. We will get to Ephesians by way of Genesis in just a moment. Genesis 3 verse 16 says, To the woman, God said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Man. Sorry, also, man. Sometimes where something is said in the Bible, where it is said, is just as important or even more important than what's being said. And where is this passage? What did I say? Genesis what? Anybody know what's going on in Genesis 3? The fall. God is pronouncing the consequences of the fall. Now, this is important, too. Because... Just because God is pronouncing the consequences doesn't mean that God is ordaining the consequences. Doesn't mean that God is causing the consequences. Sometimes God's judgment looks like God moving his protective hand. That's important for us because sometimes we think when bad things happen to us that we are being punished. And I don't think that's always the case. But regardless of that, what's going on here is that God is outlining what is to come because the fracturing of the shalom in the garden has taken place. The woman and the man have disobeyed God's ordering of the world. They've disobeyed his commandments. But we see... No matter, no matter your perspective on what's going on here, that this is a distortion of what God originally intended. Even though God is the one proclaiming that this will come to pass, this is not what God intended. And Richard Middleton, an Old Testament scholar, I think provides a really helpful summary. Um, he provides this summary in such a way that I wanted to, to kind of start here, framing the text that we're going to read in Ephesians. But I wanted to also make sure that we had this framing and not spend too much time on it. And he provides kind of a wide angle survey we're going to walk through as we make our way to Ephesians today. He says, and I'll have kind of the quote that he has on the left here and then the scripture that it's sort of relating to on your right. He says, if we examine how the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2 portray male and female relationships, it is clear that in Genesis 1, both male and female are made in God's image, and they are together granted co-regency over the earth. That's Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. In Genesis 2, the woman is created to be a helper. The Hebrew word ezer, corresponding to the man. Genesis 2, 18. In here, it would be important to unpack the typical use of helper. The noun Azer in the Old Testament, which consistently refers to one with superior power. Therefore, it is used of God as the helper that is the savior of Israel. And so what Middleton is saying here is that this verb or this noun that is applied to the woman here when it's used throughout the rest of the Old Testament is applied to God as the helper, the one with superior power. But here in Genesis 2 the helper is meant to be an equal to the one helped. Therefore the noun ezer is qualified by kenegda as his counterpart or his partner. The key point, Middleton says, is that nowhere in the biblical creation accounts is one human being granted rule or power over another. Specifically, man is not granted rule over part, or over woman as part of God's ordering of creation. Now, that's important for us. You can read the rest of the quote behind me there. It's easy for us in our slogan world To chop the Bible into small sound bites. But when we do this, we distort the text and we miss the deeper and more beautiful revelation that awaits just beneath the surface. The text that we're going to read today, as we read it, may initially sound kind of jarring, but I think you'll see as we get into it, it doesn't have any uh, need to be so. And it's really only if we allow one phrase to stand isolated, cut off from the rest of the passage. And really, one of my life's passions, just as a pastor, is to help you see the wider angle, to see the beauty of the scriptures, the life that Jesus has for us. It's truly life and life to the full. It is the life that we would not choose for ourselves, but God has chosen us, and he's given us himself. There's a mosaic that is formed by the scriptures that results in us seeing God's wisdom, his power, and his love. And, and one other preliminary note that I think is so important for us today. Though the primary metaphor that we're going to discuss today is marriage, and it regards Christian marriage, Paul's discussion in our text, as you'll see, is focused on Jesus. In imitating Christ, thus it is applicable to every single one of us in here. This is not one of those days where I'll be like, okay, single people, you don't need to listen to this. This is just for the married people. That never happens in the Bible. Because God's Word is so good, and so it wraps us in such a way that it is always having something to say to all of us. And so that's certainly not the case today. If you're not married and don't want to be, if you are not married and you want to be, If you were married, if marriage is still a mystery for you, the call for us is the same. It's the call that Paul gives in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Alice Matthews, in one of the best marriage books, they they think so, One of the best marriage books that I've found is a book called Marriage Made in Eden. And it's so good because it, it acknowledges that though we often want marriage roles to be defined for us, okay, what's the job description for me as a husband or what's the job description for somebody as a wife? The Bible does not do that. The Bible is much more uh, liberal in the sense of giving free reign to us to to, to live out the way that we were invited to embody the image of God. And much more prescriptive about the way that we do those things. And I think we'll see that today. But this book is great on that regard. But she writes about Christian marriage. Marriage is not designed to form a couples club. This is important for us as the church, as we think about how do we be a new humanity that's not just a reflection of our society's expectations. She says, marriage is not designed to form a couples club. Marriage is one form of membership in the family of God, but it is not a license for withdrawal and exclusivity. Leaving, cleaving, and making a life together is God's plan for some within the family of God. Marriage is recognizing the members of God's family as brothers and sisters who have a legitimate claim on the marriage for support and encouragement in their journey toward wholeness. Marriage is Priscilla and Aquila making tents and sharing the gospel. Marriage is Philemon and Appia welcoming Onesimus home. Marriage is being together in the family of God in such a way that the family is enriched by the union, not impoverished by a self-serving coupleness that shuts out the rest of the family. And friends, I, I just have to say, just from my very own experience, we, my, my wife and I, Courtney and I, have been so enriched by the people that have orbited into our life as part of our family, whether they're single or married, like that has been such a gift to us. And so let us be a people who understand that that marriage is not a call to only hang out with other married people or to form this like closed off sector of our lives, that it is meant to be a gift to the church. And in the same way, those of you who are single, you have gifts to offer. That is so important as we talk about what it means for us to be the family of God. Alright, we're going to get into our text a little bit today. Our text cannot be understood without the framing verses that precede it. First of all, in Ephesians 5 verse 1, the verse I already read, Paul writes, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This command, this call, this invitation is given to the entire church. Be imitators of God, walk in love. And then Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, Be filled with the Spirit of God, all of us. And then he begins this passage that we're going to get into today. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I want to read this whole section together, and then we'll go into the individual parts. Ephesians 5, if you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you have a phone, you can switch the app over to the Bible app. Paul writes, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that he may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. In the original Greek... In that verse 22, the verb be subject is not explicitly stated in regard to wives. If you see in verse 21, it says all of you, before Paul starts uh, referencing any individual group, before he starts talking to wives or husbands, he says to the entire church, be subject to one another. And that's where the verb be subject is found. This exhortation is given first to the entire church. And all of these instructions as I want to constantly remind you today given to both husbands and wives are understand within this heading mutual submission mutual seeking the needs of one another Within the marriage, yes, and within the church, largely. Mutual submission in the body of Christ collectively and at a more microcosmic level within marriage is what Paul is encouraging as living out the power of what he says in verse 18 of being filled with the spirit. Now, as we're going to see, the instructions given to the husbands are given under the same heading. It's not just the wife who's being called to submit. But a couple of really important notes here. First, the verb that is given here, be subject to one another, is not obey. It does not say in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, husbands, you are to make your wife obey you. It does not say in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, wives, you are to obey your husbands. The expectation here is for voluntary submission on the part of the wives, Not that a wife would feel some sort of compulsion from God to allow a husband to lead them into sinful behavior or to be abused physically, emotionally, or spiritually, or otherwise. Verse 23 makes this clear. For the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is head of the church. Meaning that the same way that Christ is head of the church, loving the church, giving himself for the church, is the way that the husband is supposed to embody this headship, this authority. And so that brings another question. What does it mean that the husband is the head? Is this just a re of the patriarchal norms that were pervasive in Paul's day? Is this declaring that the husband has greater importance or significance? Um, I don't think so. Biblical scholars have made compelling arguments on whether the head connotes authority. Look at Gordon Fee. He says, Indeed, the metaphorical meaning of kephalē, which is the Greek word for head, to mean chief or person of the highest rank, is rare in Greek literature. And Gordon Fee is writing about, like, if, if you were to talk uh, to somebody and you were to say, Oh, my friend is this, the head of the company. You would have this association in the English language that that would be a metaphor for that person is the CEO. That they're in charge. Right? And what Phi is talking about is that that's not necessarily the semantic range of this word that Paul writes in the Greek in this first century culture. So he says... The meaning, uh, the, the word head to mean chief or person of highest rank is actually rare in Greek literature. So much so that even though the Hebrew word rosh often carried this sense, the Greek translators of the LXX, which is the Greek Old Testament, who ordinarily, ordinarily used kafale to translate rosh n- almost never did so when ruler was intended. Paul's understanding of the metaphor, therefore, and almost certainly as the one the Corinthians, he's talking about another text, would have grasped, is head as source, especially source of life. Uh, there's a New Testament scholar named Marg Mosco. Uh, I'm not sure I'm saying that name right, because I've only read it, Uh, who also, she has a great website and blog on some of the the textual issues around this, so if you kind of, uh, you know, a a man or a woman who's sort of like asking these questions, it's a great place to start. And I'll, I'll quote from her later, so you can see her name written out, and you can Google her. Now. Gordon Fee says that this idea of head is not necessarily ingrained in the text. Now, my New Testament professor, Ben Witherington, who's like the New Testament scholar that CNN calls when they can't get N.T. right on the phone, um, he says that, that headship does have some uh, semantic range of, of authority, that it does include that. Now, I can see compelling cases for both. But one thing that is clear to me, that is clear to me from Ephesians 5, is that no matter how you interpret the ramifications of this noun, head, it's the way that the husband is to function as the head that is in view here. The husband is called to be the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. That means fulfilling that role in the same manner. Empowered by the Spirit of God, Christ does not wield his authority as a weapon. All of this focuses on Jesus. If you think about Jesus as the one who made the heavens, as the Word of God made flesh, it is stunning to think of the way that Jesus came into the world. He came and was born in anonymity. He lived his life for most of it in complete obscurity as a carpenter. Never once did he start saying, "Hey, I'm I'm actually, I'm I'm the king of the world." You should realize that. But subtly, through his own life with God, when he began to teach, people recognized. They're like, he doesn't teach like the teachers of the law, but he teaches as one with authority. Jesus never demanded that his title, that his role, like you think of the one person that could. And Jesus never did that. And so what I have to say to us today, because I know there's so many different cultures that are present here today. Like, for, for most part, Western culture is kind of like the, the scales are starting to, to balance out in this way of sort of equality between man and woman. Now, you're maybe from a culture that is much more patriarchal, that has these expectations upon the man. And what I'm saying to you is those things may be so, but Paul is speaking to a first century patriarchal culture. He's speaking to a Roman culture where the husband... As the head would have been expected to rule his household with authority. Would have been expected to claim his title as the head. As something to be held on to. And as a reason to get out of doing a lot of the menial tasks around the house. And as a way of ruling over his wife. And Paul is saying to them, you are to be the head of the church. I am sorry, I'm not real sure what's going on there. Be the head of the church as Christ, just as, in the same way, be the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And that's so important. I want to recognize that for many of you, you've ordered your house in certain ways, and that's, that's probably okay. But husbands, I want to speak to you plainly today. There is never a call in the scriptures for you to demand your rights because you're the husband. Or to say, I have the final word on this because I'm the husband. That is just not present within Ephesians 5. Christ does not wield his authority as a weapon. Paul says elsewhere about Christ's authority in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul makes this explicit. This is our call and expectations. In Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And as husbands, the way that we ex- exercise our role and our function as the head is by laying down our lives. Again, this is so important for us to grasp because that that so much that this um, has been like sort of codified for abuse and spiritual language with husbands appealing to distorted understanding of this passage, demanding that wives submit. But Jesus does not demand our submission. He does not coerce by His power. Rather, Jesus gives of Himself, and He invites. His very life subverts every notion we have of earthly authority. In giving up his rights, his title, his very body, in the appearance of defeat, he actually claims victory. Paul puts a ton of weight on the expectations that are given to husbands here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Marg Mouskow says of Paul's instructions to husbands here, she says... Paul wanted first century husbands who had a higher status and more honor simply because they were male to follow Jesus' example by lowering themselves, giving themselves up for their wives, and also by elevating their wives, loving and nurturing their wives as their own male bodies. Paul wanted a leveling of status and honor between husband and wife. And by reducing a distinction in status, a greater degree of head-body, one-flesh unity would be achieved. She says unity is Paul's aim. And this is where, for those of you who are here, again, who aren't married, who don't want to be married, or used to be married, or never will be married, this is not just a text that might apply at some point in your life. Or a text marking your own failure to see it through. Notice, Paul keeps coming back to Christ, what biblical scholars call Christology. And even though the primary example and instructions are given here regarding Christian marriage, Paul keeps including the whole of the community by focusing wholly on the work of Jesus. For Paul, there is no distinction between theology in theory and theology in practice. It is Jesus, His ways, that inform every one of our actions in the world, that inform every one of our actions towards one another. Paul is trying to integrate our lives. And we believe the lie that we can sort of compartmentalize these things. That we can have a faith and a political persuasion. That we can have a faith in some element of how we live in the world. Paul is trying to bring all of this together under the lordship of Jesus. That's what Ephesians is about. That all of it would be headed up under Jesus, his reign, his rule. That's Ephesians 1.10. Paul's instructions to wives and to husbands are instructions to all of us. We're supposed to be subject to one another, Ephesians 5.21. And Paul is wanting to integrate these discussions of Christology into the instructions given to husbands and to wives. And it's important for us to see the limitations of these analogies. So Paul's been talking about Christian marriage And he's saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. But Paul also will say, and when you love your wife as Christ loved the church, and then he starts referencing Christ, he says, husbands are the, he says, Christ is the savior of the body. And he's referencing specifically Jesus. Paul is not saying that husbands are the savior of the wives. But what Paul is saying to both husbands and wives is that our lives, empowered by the Spirit of God, in mutual submission to one another, we help the community to be filled with all the fullness of God. And if you read the end of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start talking about these forces, these powers of spiritual darkness, powers and principalities. It's this amazing, subtle thing that Paul is doing. Paul begins to talk and as he references what it means to be a husband, to be a wife, he's starting to unpack this in light of this larger battle that's going on here. And he's saying this is all part of that fight against the powers of darkness. That in the way that we love one another, in the small and subtle ways that we treat one another, in our most intimate relationships, in the way that the church submits to one another out of reverence for Christ, these are all fighting against the powers of darkness in our world. And friends, I have to say, I think this is a call for us as a church, both for husbands and wives, and for us as individuals. We need the church, out of reverence for Jesus, to receive the grace of God as dearly beloved children, to be imitators of God, to allow the Spirit of God to weave us together, because there is a world that is mired... In distortion, in deception, and in lies. That is telling a story of a kingdom that is not the one of King Jesus. And we, as the church, as people from every tongue and tribe and nation, as a people where those rules of distinction, whether they be cultural, or whether they be our own expectations, are being broken down and we're allowing the Spirit of God to make us one, to allow His grace to form us, we have a call to stand against those powers of darkness. And we do so in big ways, through prayer, through intercession, by saying, God, make a way where there isn't a way. We also do so in the way, the small and subtle ways that we love one another, in the way that we show up for one another. And this is, certainly takes place in our households as husbands and wives, but it takes place in this gathering in our midst, in our communities, as we allow the grace of God to be the primary story out of which we live. And so friends, Paul says to us, as dearly beloved children, be imitators of God. See the grace of God for us. See how Jesus enacts his rule and reign. Not through coercion, not through demand, but through giving of his life. And so to the husbands in here today, I want to say, love your wife as Christ loved the church. We should be the first to lay our lives and our preferences down. To the wives in here today. Paul says, respect and love. And again, that's not some endorsement, some rubber stamping of every abusive behavior. And if you are mired in that situation, the church is here to say, A, that abuse is always wrong. And that there are ways to allow, uh, you know, people to come around you and to to surround you. And so if that's going on in your life, like, we are here. And I want to say that so plainly because I think so often we fail to say this in the church. Especially when it's endorsed with spiritual language. Abuse is not okay. It's not the way of Jesus. Demand is not the way of Jesus. And we see that clearly from Ephesians 5. But for all of us today, single or married, our call is to be formed by this Spirit of God in mutual submission to one another. And friends, if you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, you'll have those moments where you meet somebody and you're like, that person is amazing. Wow, like whatever it means to be subject to them, like out of reverence for Jesus, that's so easy. And then you will meet people that for whatever reason bother you to no end. Maybe they just get on your nerves. Maybe they're super passionate about other things that you're not passionate about. But that, Paul is not making any distinctions here, right? He's not saying, hey, the people that you like, be subject to them. Everybody else like, you know, kind of slowly exclude from the conversation. No, Paul is saying, you have been made anew by the Spirit of God. This is our call. This is our call to be a sign and a wonder to the world and so let us be subject to one another not because it's some herculean effort that we can undertake on our own because it is our response to the grace of god that empowers us as paul says be filled with the spirit jesus in this incredible way has no patience for like merely esoteric ways of living in the world he doesn't just say hey here's a nice philosophy a nice theory He says, this is my body. This is my blood. And in the same meal that he undertakes this this new covenant, this new covenant expression of what it means for us to live as one people. People that are defined not by our preferences, not by where we were born, not by our skin color, but by what Jesus has done. In that same place, he says, I'll show you what I mean. And he gets down from the table and he washes the feet of his disciples. And then he says... As I've done to you, so you should do to one another. And in this moment, as we come to the table, there are a million ways for us as the people of God to be subject to one another. There are a million ways for us to receive this grace. And I simply want us to be open to God's spirit. Like, God, what are you asking of me to do? For all of us as a church, now I want to speak specifically to husbands. And I'm going to speak from my own experience. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church is incredibly hard. It's not something that comes naturally or easily because it's like Paul talks about elsewhere. It's like it's about killing your flesh, those desires, the way which we see the world is often just through the lens of what we want and what we want to get out of it. And so for us, like as we approach this table, let us receive the grace of Jesus. Not just as a symbol, but actual empowerment to live the life that he has for us. And let us resolve to say, out of this great grace, I want to put her first. And to the wives, I can speak again from experience. Like being subject to your husband who doesn't always live it out super well who's not always the most honorable, respectable, like great in the moment, like can be a really hard call. But Paul doesn't say, be subject to your husband if he deserves it for the day. He says, be subject. And again, with all the caveats, this is not an endorsement for any sort of abuse. But within the normal range of human interaction and relationship, within the normal highs and lows, within those seasons of your life that will come. And friends, Courtney and I have lived through them. Where it just feels like days turn into weeks that turn into months that are just hard. Within those seasons, your call is to to be subject, to give love and respect. And the Spirit of God will illuminate what that means. But there are times where marriage is not easy. And to those single folks in our midst... And to all of us, I just want to say to the whole church, God is inviting us to receive this grace, not as an idea, but as something solid. And so we come to the table. And I believe that Jesus is going to do a work of healing in our lives. And maybe it's just the healing of a different perspective, that that's not what Ephesians 5 is saying, that husbands can demand their rights. Maybe it's the healing of saying, I have, I've lived this out poorly in my life and I want something different. I want repentance today. Maybe it's just the healing of hearing these words, that for God so loved you that he gave his only son. And that Jesus, at the end of his earthly life, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, this is my blood poured out for your sins. I'm going to invite our communion service to make their way forward. And in church, I'm going to pray over you. And just in a spirit of, of expectation, of welcome, I want to invite just the Holy Spirit to come. And today, what we talked about may be so pertinent to what you are living with or what you are wrestling with or the questions you're asking. Or it may be something completely different. But I believe that God is going to meet with you here today to show you that He is with you, that He is for you, that He loves you, that though there may be ways you need to correct course, that repentance is an invitation to life and to freedom. And God wants to meet us here and lead us on as a people. So I'm going to pray over us and give a few specific calls and then we'll come forward to the table. Jesus, Lord, I pray that just by the simple kind of understanding of your word, God, Lord, that your spirit would begin to, that, that subtle and slow process of making us new. God, giving us new eyes to see, Lord. Giving us new feet to walk in your way. And God, I pray for those of us who are married who just need an infusion of your power, God, of your presence, Lord. We've been trying to do the the things of our relationship and our lives out of our own strength. God, would you you come and just offer that, that gift of peace, Lord, that you promised us. Even in this moment, just a glimpse of that. God, for those of us who are in here today, for, from whatever stage of life we're in, where the subject of marriage or even the subject of submission and authority is, is painful, God. God, would we see the Prince of Peace here today? Lord, your gentle and lowly spirit, God, that meets us where we are, that does not stamp out a bruised reed, God. Lord, that we could put our burdens upon you, that your yoke is easy and light, Lord Jesus. God, and for those of us, I just pray as a church, Lord, that we would be a sign of something different, not because we're special, God, but because you are, because your Holy Spirit is here, God, making us see things from a different perspective, God, seeing our tables from a different perspective, Lord, for those of us who are nuclear families, married with kids, Lord, would we see how inviting others into our midst is such a gift? For those of us who are here today and sort of have to allow your your community, God, to build a, a, a family, God, to build a presence, Lord, would you just help this church to be defined by tables that don't make sense other than the fact that you are Lord and you are here. So God, wherever we're coming from today, would your Holy Spirit, just in the spirit of worship as we come to the table, God, would you speak to us? God, we're expectant. God, we need you. We thank you for your grace on the cross. We thank you for the salvation that your blood has bought. God, we thank you that we are redeemed by your resurrection, Lord Jesus, that we are anew. We thank you for your presence. In your name we pray and we proclaim these things. The gospel of Jesus, Lord Jesus, we receive in your grace. Amen.